Well, the fact that Joanne is up here standing, singing that song, is more than just a song. It's a testimony, isn't it, of God's faithfulness. A uh, couple of things before we jump into our passage this morning that uh, I want to remind you. Of. If you've signed up um, to be a part of Modern Day Night, so dads of fifth and sixth grade sons, we start today at 3.30 and even if you haven't sign, signed up, if that applies to you, we would love for you to come. So please feel free to join us at 3.30 today. The other thing is, on the family meeting that we're going to have next Sunday, that includes both members and regular attenders, even visitors. Uh, if you want to just kind of hear some things that God is putting on the hearts of those who are in this church and where he seems to be leading and guiding us, we want you to be a part of that. So there's no restrictions about who comes to the family meeting. Everyone is welcome, and we hope you're, you're there. We do it during that first hour, so instead of having our ABFs, everybody's going to be in the sanctuary for the family meeting. So uh, let's pick up where we left off last with Moses. You remember, <clears throat> when we last left Moses, God had patiently worked through all of his questions of inadequacy. You remember when he began, Moses said, God, <laughs> I don't have the power to deliver the people of Israel. And God replied and said, I never told you that you did. I will come down and deliver my people. Yeah, but God, I, I no longer have influence. I, I'm not the prince of Egypt. <laughs> I'm a shepherd. They won't listen to what I have to say. And, and God says, Moses, you're right. They won't believe. Because of your influence, they'll believe because of my power. Trust me. But God, I, I stutter. I, I fall all over. The, I can't seem to find the right words at the right time. It, just please, pick someone else. And God tells Moses, Moses, I picked you. And I will provide. I will give you Aaron. He's your brother. And he will go with you. And he will speak the words. And you can perform the signs. But know this, Moses. I will deliver my people, Israel. So Moses has this conversation with God, and he returns home to his family and begins to tell them about what his plan might be. He shares a little bit, as we'll see, not completely all of the information, because it appears as if there is still some refining of Moses' faith that is still in store. Some issues in his life that will prove to be obstacles to his faith. For that matter, the same is true for the people of Israel. And if we dig a little deeper, I think you and I, if we were honest with ourselves, would say the same is true for you and me. We all have little compromises that I'll call barriers of unbelief. Compromises that inhibit and be obedience because as long as we're hiding sin we seem to trip over our own issues of unbelief that's why the writer of hebrews says lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles you so that you might run with endurance the race set before you the, the idea here is if we're always stumbling over unconfessed issues of sin we just can't seem to gain ground we won't run with endurance same true for Moses the people of Israel and it's true for us faithful obedience flows out 
of a heart of complete surrender. A life without compromise. That's a lesson that Moses still has to learn. And I pray that as we look at this together, it'll be one that we will gain understanding from as well. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we recognize that the stories that you put in Scripture are true. They, in fact, occurred, but they were very purposeful in how they were recorded because they reflect the very same issues in our heart that took place many years ago in the lives of others. So as we listen to this story of Moses, may we not separate ourselves as if it's some distant fairy tale that we somehow learn from, but instead help us see ourselves in this story. It's a story about us. It's a story about our heart and our issues of unbelief, obstacles to our faith, places of compromise. And like we see in the life of Moses, if we will come to you and be humble before you, you do a, a great work of transformation so that we can see and experience the fullness of who you are and what you've done for us and through us. And may we understand that more clearly this morning. Amen. All right, turn to Exodus chapter 4, verse 18. Exodus chapter 4, verse 18. Now, keep in mind the context of everything I just reminded us about in terms of this dialogue that took place between God and Moses. And now look at verse 18. Then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please, let me go that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt to see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now, based on everything we know about that conversation that Moses had with God, is there anything that seems odd about what he just said to Jethro? It's less about what he said and more about what he didn't say, right? He mentions absolutely nothing about this miraculous encounter with God through a burning bush that never consumed itself. <laughs> just a benign little request of, hey, by the way, can I have a little time off? I want to go back to Egypt and see if my brethren are still alive and doing okay. So let me ask you, why do you think Moses was so reluctant to tell Jethro about his experience? What kept him from being completely honest about what he encountered? We don't know for sure, but spend a little time thinking about this, and let me offer a couple of suggestions that may apply. Maybe Moses was embarrassed to tell Jethro about his encounter with God. And, and think about whether you've ever been in a similar situation. The perfect opportunity to share about your faith in Christ, to, to talk about the things that God has done in your life, in your marriage, in your family. <laughs> it's right there in front of you. But you just can't do it. Because you don't want that person you're talking to to think less of you, to think you're some kind of religious freak. You're somehow uh, a little bit like all those other Christians. And so you don't say anything at all. Or maybe it was this. Maybe Moses was remaining silent just in case God didn't come through. His lack of full belief kept him from being completely honest. 
his doubts kept him from speaking openly about what he had experienced in God's work in his life. And my question to you is this. Have you ever been there? You see, if we think about what is happening in the life of Moses as we've just prayed about before we started looking at this, we don't want to see this as some distant story that doesn't relate to us. This is our story. And the things that are going on in the heart and life of Moses very likely has happened to every one of us in this room. Sometimes we care way too much about what other people think. And those little compromises might just reveal some really big obstacles to our faithful obedience. We're going to see that in the life of Moses, and I suspect it's true for you and I as well. Look at verse 24. Now it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off his son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet and said, You are indeed a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone and that time, at that time, she said, you are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And the Lord said to Aaron, go meet Moses in the wilderness. So he met, went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. So after visiting with Jethro, Moses leaves with his wife and two kids Along the way, as we've just read, something very strange takes place. Immediately after commissioning Moses, God brings him to the point of death. The thing we need to understand about what's going on here is Moses is one sick dude. He is just a step away from death's door. I think so much so that there are no words recorded by him because I don't think he can speak. I think he is in that bad of a shape. It was his wife, Zipporah, who springs into action, and apparently she knows exactly what to do. She immediately takes the initiative and circumcises her boys, throws the foreskin at his feet, and says, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And if you're reading this, you're going, what in the world is going on? Well, I believe it's this. I believe that there is a hidden sin in the life of Moses that has just been exposed. You'll remember, Moses is a Hebrew at heart. Remember the affection he had to his brethren? And we can be certain that Moses, as a child of an Israel, Israelite family, would have been circumcised on the eighth day. It was a covenant commitment of God's chosen people, a sign of that promise made by him to them and their commitment to follow him faithfully. There's a passage in Genesis chapter 17, that's verse 14, that applies to what we see happening here. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of the foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. See, it appears as if Moses has become passive in leading his own home. Now, in the New Testament, we see when Paul gives instruction to Timothy and Titus about leadership in the church. Do you remember one of the qualifications that is necessary for that leader? It's necessary for the leader to be able to lead his own home before he is given responsibility to be a leader in the church. 
And I think the very same thing is happening here in the life of Moses. He can't lead the nation of Israel if he's unable to lead his own home. Zipporah does for Moses what Moses should have done all along. After doing so, what we uh, read as we continue on in the story of Moses, she returns with the two boys because they're in no shape to travel at this point. So Moses is left alone. And he is left instead by himself. And so here's my question that I want us to think about when we consider this very strange occurrence that's taken place so early in our story. My question is this. Why is God so strict on this issue and yet was so patient with all the multitude of questions and doubts and fears that Moses presented to God? Why the difference? What's different about these issues of questions compared to compromise? I believe God is patient with all of our questions. I believe He wants us to draw near with all of our fears, with with all of our doubts. He he wants us to, to seek Him for things that we don't understand. But compromise has the very opposite effect. Instead of drawing near, we push away. Instead of being honest, we hide. And sin that is ignored becomes an obstacle to our faith. You cannot run with endurance if you're tripping over your own unconfessed sin. It seems that this near-death experience that Moses went through got his attention. Because did you notice in verse 28? Did you notice that Moses told Aaron all the words? And told him all the signs. There is no hiding at this point. He has fully disclosed all the information about his encounter with God. I think he got the message. Look at uh, verse 28. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him. And all the signs that he had commanded him to do now verse 31 so the people believed and when they heard the Lord was concerned about the sons of Israel and that he had seen their affliction then they bowed low and worshiped what has just taken place here is that Moses has explained to Aaron all that God said and all that God did and as a result the two of them went to the nation of Israel held in bondage in Egypt and they told them the very same things all that God said and all that God did And in response to everything that they had told them, the people of Israel, it says they believed. Not only did they believe, but they responded in worship. (laughs) And I'm thinking probably at this point, Moses is probably considering to to himself, man, this ministry thing is awesome. (laughs) Just do what God tells you to do and everything works out great. Give them the gospel and everyone believes, right? Well, what Moses is about to discover is that suffering often reveals the true foundation of our faith. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. And afterward, Moses and Aaron came to and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord 
that I should obey his voice to let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. (laughs) Moses and Aaron ran smack dab into the hardness of Pharaoh's heart just as God said they would. He could care less about the God of Israel. In fact, in that culture, he considered himself, as did the people, to be a God as well. And in his own mind, he was much more powerful because he was the one in control. And to show the power of that control, look at what he does in verse 6. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters over the people and their foremen, saying, You're no longer to give people straw to make brick as previously. Let them go and get it for themselves. But the quota of bricks which they are making previously, you shall impose on them. You are not to reduce any of it because they're lazy. Therefore, they cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier on the men and let them work as it so that they will pay no attention to these false words. What we need to understand about what Pharaoh does here is he has just made a requirement that would have been impossible to achieve. They simply did not have the supplies to meet the very same quota. And to make matters worse, they were going to be beaten for things that were impossible to do. And I want you to notice their response in the midst of this suffering. Verse 14. Moreover, the foremen, the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmaster had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why you not completely required the amount yesterday or today in making brick as previously? In other words, why didn't you meet your quota? Then the foreman of the sons of Israel came to Pharaoh and cried out, saying, Why do you deal with this with uh, why do you deal this way with your servants? There's no straw given to your servants. Yet they keep saying to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are being beaten. But it's the fault of your own people. But he said, You are lazy, very lazy. Therefore, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. So go now and work, for you will be given no straw, yet you must deliver the quota of the bricks. Now, when we read this section, let me ask you a question. Who do the people of Israel cry out to in the midst of their suffering? Pharaoh. Who do they see themselves as in his presence? In other words, whose authority are they under? Pharaoh. What do they say three times within that dialogue? Your servants. Your servants. Your servants. In desperation, the Israelites cry out to Pharaoh. They bow down to his authority as his servants. And in the end, They blame Moses. Look at verse 21. They said to them, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I've come to Pharaoh to speak in your name, He has done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. It's easy to worship God when things are going your way. But suffering reveals the true foundation of our faith. Instead of turning to God, 
the Israelites appeal to the government, to the person in charge, to Pharaoh. They go on to blame the elected officials, Moses and Aaron, for all their problems. And who says that the Old Testament isn't applicable to where we live today? The people are putting their faith in the wrong place. Even Moses has doubts that ultimately turn to fears. God, this is not going well. I told you not to send me. I told you Pharaoh was too powerful. And not to mention the fact that you have not done what you said you would do. When I think about Moses, I think he's a lot like Peter. <laughs> kind of open mouth, insert foot. But he's also a lot like Peter because he is bold enough to take steps of faith that nobody else is willing to do. He stood before, before Pharaoh and boldly proclaimed what God told him to say. But here's where he got in trouble, just like Peter. He began to look at the distractions around him and he listened to the wrong voices. As a result, he began to sink into despair. Moses is not looking at life with spiritual eyes. If you've ever been fishing on a sunny day, you know that the glare off the water is almost blinding. You just can't see very well, so a lot of fishermen will wear polarized sunglasses. That's important because not only does it take the glare away, but it actually allows you to see beneath the surface so you can see things that otherwise you're blind to. I think what is happening here with Moses is that God is fixing to give him a pair of spiritual sunglasses so that he can see beneath the surface of his circumstances. And look at what he says in chapter 6, verse 6. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their, the, from their bondage. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of, under the burdens of, of the Egyptians. I will bring you to the land which I swore to you, to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you for a possession. Why? Because I am the Lord. It's interesting to me that even in the midst of his despair, God did not condemn Moses for his doubts. Instead, he simply reminded him of his promises. Seven times in those verses, God said, I will, I will, I will. That's a promise, Moses. God is saying, Moses, don't look at what is happening around you. Look at me. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Because God is about to put his power on display. And he's going to do so through a series of plagues that we're all very familiar with. But instead of looking at each one of these plagues in detail, I want us to take a big picture view to understand maybe a little bit better what is going on. These, uh, ten, these ten plagues, we're going to look at the first nine. We're going to save number ten for next week. But in doing so, we're going to group each of the nine plagues into three groups of three. That's important because if we see them this way, you're going to notice a very predictable pattern in these three groups of three. 
And what I want you to see is that when we look at these plagues, these are not random acts of God. Because it can seem that way. I mean, you got blood, you got frogs, you got flies. I mean, what in the world is going on here? What I want you to see instead is that they are very purposeful. God is putting his powers on display, yes. But he's doing it in a way that reveals his supremacy over all the false gods that exist in the world. On this slide, what you're going to see is for every plague that takes place, there is a specific Egyptian god that is being overruled. And what you'll also need to know is that these are not the only Egyptian gods, but these most certainly would have been some of the most well-known. And so with each plague, God is demonstrating in judgment over the Egyptians his power over these false gods. So let's get started. The first plague is the plague of blood. If we could turn to Exodus chapter 7, verse 20. Exodus chapter 7, verse 20. So Moses and Aaron did even as the Lord had commanded, and he lifted up the staff and struck the water. That was the Nile. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, and all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. The fish that were in the Nile died, and the Nile became foul, that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and the blood, through all the, and, and the blood was through all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts, and the Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then Pharaoh turned and went to his house with no concern, even for this. So all the Egyptians dug around the Nile from the water, for water to drink, for they could not drink from the water of the Nile. Now, a couple of things that are important to recognize about this first plague. This first plague impacted both Hebrews and Egyptians alike. The water source of the Nile applied to all of the land of Egypt. So there were no exceptions about who was impacted by what just took place in this plague. So what they had to do is they had to dig around the water um, to get something that was somehow usable. Now, I've probably watched too many TV shows, but I love survival shows, right? I've seen them do this before. They'll get to a river that's murky and nasty, and they'll go beside that river. They'll dig down into the sand, typically, and what will happen eventually is the water from the river will filter through the sand into this hole, and it becomes something that they can actually use. And I believe the same thing is, is happening here. Now, it would have been terribly inconvenient. It would have been a very limited supply, but at least at some level, there was a workaround. And I also want you to notice that the magicians who worked for Pharaoh used their arts to duplicate the miracle. But let me ask you this. How helpful is that? They couldn't reverse the curse. They could only add to it. And so here, I believe, you see God allowing the, the work of evil through the hand of Satan through the magicians who were performing these secret arts to contribute to the judgment that was falling upon them. They could not reverse it. They could only add to it. Now look at what happens next. Chapter 8, verse 6. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt. 
The frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. The magicians did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up from the land of Egypt. There it is again. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he remove the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go, that they may sacrifice to the Lord. The second plague was worse than the first because there's no work around here. This was a frog infestation. It was everywhere, and again, it affected both Hebrews and Egyptians alike. It was in bedrooms. It was in bathrooms. It was in kitchens. It was everywhere you stepped, you stepped on a frog, okay? It was nastiness. What we learned later on is that when the plague stopped, they piled up these heaps of frogs throughout the land, and the odor was nauseating. What this reminds me of, and I, I, you know, you remember these things as a kid, when I, uh, in my family, uh, moved to Stillwater, Oklahoma, where my dad uh, was getting a degree at OSU. I remember before school started, they took us to where we were going to be going to elementary school at the time. And I can still see it in my mind's eye because there was a caterpillar infestation. I remember walking up to this school and everywhere we stepped, we were stepping on caterpillars. They were crawling up the walls, and as they would get up to the top and and lose traction, they would fall down. It was raining caterpillars. I mean, it was the freakiest thing I'd ever experienced as a young child. And so when I think about this plague of frogs, that's the image that comes to my mind. Once again, the magicians could add to the curse, but they could not reverse it. What we'll learn is that Pharaoh cries out for mercy God gives him that mercy, and then he changes his mind, which will be his ongoing pattern. Why? Because his heart is hard. Now, the next plague is the last plague in this group of three. Look at what happens in verse 16. Then the Lord says to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff, strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats or or lice through all the land of Egypt. They did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand and his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats of, uh, on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats through all the land of Egypt. And listen to this. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, This is the hand of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them and to the Lord He said, I'm supposed to be giving you these, sorry. There's the gnats. I knew I couldn't do do two things at one time. You'll notice on this last plague, as is all the third plagues in each of the sets, comes without warning. Every other time, Moses went, explained what was going to happen, gave them a chance to repent, to let the people go, and they would choose not to. In this case, there was no warning. The plague was just called on by Moses. Also notice that the magicians are no longer able to duplicate the plague. And what do they say to Pharaoh? (laughs) This surely is the hand of God. In other words, we have met our match and he wins. We can't do this. And from this point on, they're completely silent. You hear nothing about these magicians any longer. Now we enter into the next set of three plagues. And as we do so, I want you to notice some things are going to change here. As we begin this next set, it's going to be different. Look at verse 21. For if you do not let my people go, here's the warning, behold, 
I will send swarms of flies on you and on your servants and on your people and into your houses. And to the houses of the Egyptians will be full of swarms of flies and also to the ground on which they dwell. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen. Remember who lives in the land of Goshen? The Israelites. Where my people are living so that there are no swarms of flies where they will be. In order that you may know that I, the Lord, am in the midst of the land. And I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign will occur. Then the Lord did so. And there came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and the house of the servants. And the land was laid waste because of the swarms of flies in all the land of Egypt. So now there's a distinction being made. I don't know if you guys are bothered by flies, but there are certain times during the summer where we'll sit out and have a cookout. And I tell you, if there's four or five of those bad boys on me, I'm just driving crazy. We've got to go inside. This is a nuisance, right? Can you imagine hundreds of thousands of millions of flies everywhere? And you go in your house, and they're still there. And you go in your bathroom, and they're still there. Everywhere you go, flies upon flies upon flies. And yet... Your next-door neighbor has none. None. God has made a distinction to show that he is the God of his people and those who call him by name. Now, I want you to notice that those first three plagues affected everybody, including the Israelites. And I think that's important. Because it's as if God is saying, listen, if you're going to bow to his authority, if you're going to look to him for relief, then you will share in his punishment. Choose today whom you will believe. And so in this third, or second set, the first plague of this second set, God is offering grace. And every time, every time God offers grace, it is an invitation to believe. And he's telling his people, look, I'm making a distinction here, and it's full of grace. So if you'll look and see what is happening and put your trust in me, then I will continue to provide. Meanwhile, as we know, Pharaoh's heart is hard. So God will now send a plague that will affect their food supply. Look at chapter 9, verse 5. Then the Lord set a definite time, saying, tomorrow... The land will do this thing, uh, I will do this thing in the land. So the Lord did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died. But of the livestock of the sons of Israel, none died. Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock in Israel dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. This plague, again, affected just the Egyptians so much so. Did you notice that Pharaoh couldn't believe that this was happening? So he actually sent people to go over there and look and see if they had, they had cattle that was being affected. In fact, they weren't. So those uh, spies came back and said, no, he's right. Their livestock's just fine. Ours is dead. This is not only an issue of food supply, but this is an issue of security. The animals were the ones being used to, to build their fortresses. They're the ones being used to, to go into battle. So this is not just an issue of food. It's also an issue of security. But Pharaoh will not give in. Why? 
because his heart is hard. And so God continues with this next plague. And as is the case with all of the third plagues in each set of three, it comes without warning. Look at chapter 9, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of soot from a kiln, and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. It will become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and will become boils breaking out with sores on men and beasts through all the land of Egypt. This is an interesting one because he gives him some very specific instructions. They seem odd. He says, take dust or uh, ashes out of a kiln. You know what a kiln is? It's used to make things like bricks. Things like would symbolize the oppression of God's people who were making those bricks. And he takes those ashes as a sign of oppression and turns them into an Egyptian disease. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And that's exactly what is happening in these plagues. Now, have you noticed that as we've gone through these plagues, they're getting worse and worse and worse? <laughs> Look at what happens in verse 18. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will send a very heavy hail as had not been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, sin, bring, bring your livestock and whatever you have in the field for safe, to safety. Every man and beast that is found in the field and is not brought home when the hail comes down on them will die. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that even in the midst of this most severe judgment, God gives mercy? He gives them a warning. He says, this is exactly when it's going to happen. This is exactly what's going to happen. And if you'll take cover, you'll be protected. If you don't hear, heed my warning, you will not survive. And that's exactly what took place. Those who obeyed were protected. Those who didn't heed the warning did not survive. Now, what this seventh plague left standing, the eighth plague would completely destroy. Look at chapter 10, verse 4. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. They uh, shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will also eat the rest of what, has, of what has escaped, what is left from the hail. And they will eat every tree which sprouts from every part of the field. When Moses meets with Pharaoh, we learn that the, the people beg him to comply. Look at verse chapter, uh, yeah, chapter 10, verse 7. Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long will this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not realize that Egypt is destroyed? This is bad news right here, okay? Because the whole premise of Pharaoh's power is his ability to rule over the people. The people have just lost faith in Pharaoh, and he is angry. Here's how we know that he's angry, because look at verse 9. Moses said, we shall go with our young and our old, with our sons and with our daughters, with our flocks and our herds. We shall go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, Pharaoh... Thus may the Lord be with you if I ever let you 
and your little son ones go, take heed, for evil is in your mind. Not so. Go now, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desire. So they were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. A couple of things to, rem- to, to recognize here. Do you notice that when Pharaoh or Moses made his request, he said, let all of us go. Young, old, men, women, animals included. But what does Pharaoh reply with? He says, no, animals stay. Why? Because they don't have any. They've been destroyed. He's trying to barter with God on this one. He's saying, I'll let the men go, but everything else has to stay. We don't see it very clearly in this passage because of the English translation, but I believe that he is so angry that his words are intended to be a curse upon Moses and those who are going out to worship this God. The reason I say that is because there's this strange phrase at the end of verse 10 that says, take heed for evil is in your mind. Now, it's important to know that in Hebrew, the word for evil is ra. If you'll remember back to that slide with the Egyptian gods, Ra is the sun god. One of the most powerful gods in all of Egypt as far as they were concerned. And so basically what Pharaoh is doing is he is kicking Moses out of his presence and saying, may Ra have his way with you. That's what he's invoking in his anger. So the locusts come. And then, as is the pattern, the ninth plague comes without warning. And are you surprised at what that plague might be? Look at verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky. That there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards the sky, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwellings. He invoked the power of the sun god Ra. And in this ninth plague, God put Ra to death. The sun didn't shine. I know the students have been to the caves where you've gone back into places where you're far away from any source of light and you cannot see your hand in front of your face. Literally, you cannot see your hand in front of your face. That's the darkness that they had, which is why no one moved. No one went anywhere. They all stayed because you could feel the depth of the darkness from this plague. Now, we're going to stop here because next week we're going to look at that final plague. But before we leave what we've walked through together, I think there's important things for us to learn. Remember, these plagues were not random acts of God. They were very intentional with a very specific purpose. God is judging Egypt just as he said he would do. I told you I'd miss the slides, but here's the one I want to get to. And I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. It is a promise made by God to Abraham and his people. 
I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And so one of the reasons that we see the plagues, one of the purposes of these very difficult judgments of God is because of this promise. They were cursing the people of Israel, and therefore they will be cursed. Yes, God is putting his power on display, but it's very specific to demonstrate his unique power over each and every one of these false gods of Egypt. But even within the midst of the judgment, don't miss how God reveals his grace. And every time God's grace is revealed, it is an invitation to believe. Do you remember what he said? And this is probably my favorite uh, passage in what we've looked at this morning. It's this one. Where God tells Moses what he will do. He says, I will deliver. I will redeem. I will adopt you as my own. I want you to think about those words, and I don't want you to miss the connection. He says, I will deliver you from bondage. Now think about that. What was the bondage of the Israelites? Slavery. What is our bondage? Sin. They were in bondage to slavery. But even like us, even today, we too are in bondage, a bondage to sin. And what does he go on to say? I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Think about what Jesus did on the cross. Arms outstretched for the purpose of redemption because we are in bondage to sin. Don't miss the connection. He said, I, my redemption will come with great judgment. And there is no greater judgment than the judgment of sin. Scripture says the wages of sin is what? That's final. That's not a warning. That's death. And death is final. There is no greater judgment than the great judgment of sin. And Jesus Christ took the judgment that was due to us upon himself so that our sin could be forgiven. Delivered from bondage. Outstretched arm. Great judgment. Why? Because I will take for you my people, and I will be your God. In the New Testament, it's said this way. For as many believe in Jesus, to them he gives the right to become children of God. One of his very own. His people. That he might dwell among his people. The things that were promised by God to the person of Moses were fulfilled the work of Jesus Christ and those promises were made ultimately to you and me as well so with that in mind let me ask you this with every evidence of God's grace there's an invitation to believe right so the question that I want us to ask and answer for ourselves is what is our barrier to believe <laughs> what stands in the way of us trusting in God do we like Moses, privatize our faith because we're worried about what other people think. I know that there are people who come from different countries that come from families who don't believe. And one of the barriers that you have to belief is what are they going to think? What are they going to say? What are they going to do? 
sometimes we remain silent because if we're honest, we're worried that God might not come through. It becomes a barrier to our belief. Maybe there's hidden compromises (laughs) that also become obstacles to our faith. Here's what I want you to understand. I believe one day, and I believe based on the testimony of Scripture, that God's judgment will once again revisit the earth. It's what we read about in Revelation. And what we need to understand about what is spoken of in Revelation, it makes the Egyptian plagues look like a child's playground. There's no comparison. And until that day, I believe God is trying to get our attention. I believe there's an evidence of grace in the fact that we have not seen what has promised to be unfolded. Like Israel, God is calling us to trust him, not governments or elected officials. Like Israel, he wants us to break free from our country in a land that is ultimately not our home to begin with because judgment is coming. And until that day, his grace is an invitation to believe. So, in our story, God put his power on display through the plagues, right? So in this time where God's grace is being given to us, where is his power put on display? What does it look like right now? How is God's power put on display? In you. In you. We are his people. He is our God, the Lord, the creator of the earth. And his power is one that is sufficient to radically transform our lives. So the question that we have to ask and answer ourselves, is that evident in our life? We went to a conference on Monday at DTS. The elders and Jason and Bruce joined us. There was some great content, but one of the things that the speaker, Russell Moore, said that really struck me when he made this statement. He said, you know, one of the things I noticed, he was speaking about um, uh, movies of the rapture like Left Behind. And he said, one of the things that uh, is implied in all these movies that speak to the events of the rapture is that the world is going to be in great concern when Christians are gone. He said, but what if they're relieved? Or even worse, what if they don't even notice? Because we have failed to be the people who demonstrate the power of God to the world around us. And we look like everybody else. What if? I don't know about you, but that stopped me in my tracks. And it made me consider my own life, my own family, my own church. And I want to encourage you, as I have tried to do in my own heart, is to be humble and to be honest before God. To live a life without compromise and to realize the fact that we don't see God's judgment in the way that he promised it will come is an evidence of his grace and that grace is an invitation. And that invitation applies to you and I as children of God because we are the ones through whom his power is put on display. And if it's not seen through us, then it will be seen in other ways. 
So let's be the people that God's called us to be. Humble before the Lord, the creator of all the earth. Let him have his way. Refuse to live with compromise. Refuse to hide sin and stumble over unconfessed sin because you can't run with endurance. On a morning like this, because of conversations I've had just before the service began, I know that there are people who are hurting, who are in hard places. And the easy thing for us to do is to acknowledge things that were said this morning and walk on out that door and just carry on your life as is normal. But if you've got a power that is within you and promises that have been given to you, then you need to share them with those around you, including the people in this room. But don't stop there. You're going to go to a house that's next door to a neighbor who doesn't know Christ. And you need to be able to live and speak in a way that shares that light with them as well. But don't stop there. When you go to work on Monday, you're going to walk into an office that's going to be filled with people that more than likely don't follow Christ. And if they do, maybe their light doesn't shine. And so what are you going to do to encourage them to something different because of the light that is within you? In the classroom. In the workplace. In the home. Men. Don't be passive. Moses failed to do what God had called him to do, and he could not lead Israel until he was leading his own home. The same applies to you and I. So let's be the people that God has called us to be and demonstrate the power that is within us because of the grace that has been given to us. It's an invitation. Let's live like we believe. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for how relevant your word is and because of his relevance, it's power to convict, but in the midst of that conviction, to give promises of encouragement of who you've called us to be and the way that looks in a world that has fallen. We see it in the life of Christ, and we know that he told us very explicitly, whatever you see them doing to me, you can expect the same for those who follow me. And yet, Father, we know that within a world of suffering, the foundation of faith is ultimately revealed. So may it reveal within us a power of your work in our lives that shares the gospel for those around us. May we be the people that you've called us to be. We pray this in your name. Amen. Have a great day.